Our reading from our confessions this afternoon is going to be from Lord's Day 13. So in connection to that, let's turn to Hebrews 1 together. The epistle to the Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world's who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne... O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But, again, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? So far, a reading from God's Word. Let's now turn to Lord's Day 13. Lord's Day 13, that's on page 528 in the, backs of, in the, in the back of your books of praise. Lord's Day 13, why is He, that's why is Jesus Christ, called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. 
We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And he has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has a big house. God has a big house. Jesus told his disciples once, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? And in this house, the Bible tells us all over the place that in this big house, there are many servants and there are many children. God's courts are filled with powerful servants, angels that, that, that do his bidding without blinking. And the streets of God's city, there's, they're filled with God's magnificent multi-ethnic multitude, sons and daughters from every nation, from every tribe, every language under heaven. But among those armies of servants and among those multitudes of children, there is one that stands out among all the rest, Jesus Christ the only natural Son of God and the church's only Lord. In the household of God, Jesus Christ is magnificently unique. First, He among all of God's sons and daughters, He alone is the, is the only eternal Son of God and the only natural Son of God, the Son through whom all other sons and daughters are made God's children. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And second, Jesus is the church's only Lord. Jesus alone purchased us. Jesus, Jesus alone took us from the domain of the devil and sin and brought us into the Father's house. Jesus alone spilled his own blood to buy us back for God. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we, we follow up, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, by, by, by saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the first thing that we confess in this Lord's Day is that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And the Catechism brings out three things from this phrase. First, Jesus Christ is the only eternal Son of God. Every other Son of God is a creature and had a certain specific beginning in time, Jesus alone is as eternal as the Father is. And second, Jesus is the only natural Son of God. Among all the other sons of God, ourselves included, Jesus is the only one that shares in God's very nature. And then third, the Catechism points out that, that, that through this only natural and only eternal Son of God, we too are brought into the family. We are made sons and daughters of God as truly as Christ himself is a son of God. But first, Jesus is the only eternal son of God. He is before all things, Colossians 1 says. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ comes before the creation. John 1 tells us that, that, that through Christ the Father made the world. 
And now logically, if, if, if it's through Christ that God made the world, He has to come before the world, doesn't He? In fact, He has to come before time itself. And not only does Christ precede creation, but He is actually as eternal as the Father Himself is. And this can be kind of hard to wrap our minds around, because if we think in purely human terms, we understand that, that, that parents always come before their children, don't they? Fathers precede sons and daughters. But of the Son, it is said, and this is, this is straight, out of our, uh, straight out of our Scripture text in Hebrews 1, of the Son, it is said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a cloak. They'll, they'll, they'll be changed like nothing, but you are the same, and your years will never end. And the writer of Hebrews couldn't possibly be clearer. Jesus himself is God. And he's not some junior version of God the Father. No, he is true, eternal, all-glorious, all-wise God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, like we confess in the Nicene Creed. When talking about the Trinity, theologians will talk about the, the eternal generation of the Son. They will say that the Son has always been God's Son, and the Father has always been the Son's Father. They will say that, that yeah, God is the overflowing fountain of all good, and so as long as God has been around, both, both the begetter and the begotten, both the Father and the Son have existed. God was not sitting around twiddling his thumbs, waiting for a good opportunity to create the world, no. God is the fountain of all life, and so it, it, is, it is in the very nature of God that both Father and Son exist in an eternal relationship. So first, Jesus is the eternal, the, is the eternal Son of God. And second, very closely related to that, Jesus is also the only natural Son of God. He alone shares in all of God's divine nature. In the Nicene Creed again, we, we confess that that He is God of God, so God having come from God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, because He is of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Jesus is not, as some would suggest, Jesus is not a mortal creature. Jesus is not an angel that was, that, that, that was raised to divinity. Mormons and, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses suggest something like this. No, Jesus is God of God. He shares in the nature of the Father. He's made of the same stuff as the Father, if you will. He is as much God as the Father is, as we've seen already. And He's been God as long as the Father has been. Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us that God made the universe through Him. So if God made the universe through Him, He can't be part of that universe, can He? And going back all the way to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 makes it clear that all that existed before creation was God. And then the next verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3, tells us that the, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the, the exact expression of His divine nature, holding all things up by His powerful Word. But then it goes on. And it speaks of that same person of the divine Son saying that, that when He had made purification for sins, so when that Creator had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. 
So this eternal, natural Son of God, he is, he is at the same time eternally and completely God and separate from the Father. And he, as God's eternal and natural Son, is, is Son of God in a very different way than any who came alongside him. In Luke 3, Luke talks about, about Adam being the Son of God. And then in Acts 17, Paul the Apostle, he, he refers to all people on the earth as children of God, saying of God, we are all his offspring. But what's being said there is not that all humans are, are all God's children in, in a relational sense. 19th and 20th century liberalism really, really embraced that idea. He's not saying that, 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 that all humans are all God's children in a relational sense, beloved sons and daughters, but rather what, what, what Luke is saying and what Paul is saying is, is that all of humanity came from God. God is the source of the human race. And the very same thing is true of the angels. Jesus tells us that angels don't marry, angels are not given in marriage, they don't reproduce. And so, each individual angel is, in a sense, a son of God, like the book of Job points out in several places. They have no natural fathers, and therefore, in a sense, God is the one from whom they came, though, again, not in a natural way, but, but through the act of creation. So both human beings and angels are referred to as sons of God, but neither can be called either God's eternal son nor his natural son. The son, the second person of the Trinity, he alone fills that position. And therefore, if you read Hebrews chapter 1, the author wants to be absolutely clear that there is a real difference between the role and the majesty and the power of angels and the role, the majesty, and the power of the eternal natural son of God. So if you look at what the Bible says, really there's only one conclusion to reach. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. But all the same, though that is and remains undeniably true, the Nicene Creed goes on and says, He for us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven and He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And one of the most tremendous, uh, tremendous parts of that salvation that the Nicene Creed goes on to outline is our adoption. What J.I. Packer calls the highest privilege that the gospel offers, our adoption, higher even than justification. Because in, in, in adoption, the traitor, he's forgiven, and he's brought in for supper, and he's given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is so much greater. Angels and Adam and all of Adam's offspring, they're all sons of God in the sense that their origin is with Him. They all come from Him, but the relational aspect of sonship, it's missing, isn't it? And that's a crucial aspect of true sonship. It's a crucial part of being brought into God's family. Our catechism outlines our adoption with this sentence, we, however, are children of God by adoption through, through grace for Christ's sake. 
First, we are adopted children. We're not pretend children. We're adopted children. We're real children. God has taken us into his family and has declared that we are his children. And when God speaks, beloved, when God speaks, things happen. God spoke once and creation sprang into being. God speaks and, and his word goes forth and all of nature submits to his voice. God speaks and, and, and as his word goes forth, dead people are brought to life. He declares them to be alive and their hearts have no choice but to listen. And so also God declares us to be his legal and beloved sons and daughters. And by speaking that truth, he makes it so. And beloved, God has not brought us into the foyer or or into the front hall or into the mudroom. God has not brought us into the house just to be his servants. He has brought us in to be his sons. With all the rights that that entails, God has has made us His children and He has given us all the rights of sons because that is what we are. But at the same time, we're not not children of God because because of our inherent value. We're not children of God because we are, are so lovely in ourselves. No, we are children of God by grace. God did not look at us and see diamonds in the rough. God didn't look at us and see useful servants that he thought would, would add real value to his kingdom if, if they were added. No. No, but out of sheer grace, God brought us to the table. And he named us all as, as, as his sons and daughters, not because he was lacking anything, not because he was lonely, not because he was looking for someone that he thought would be nice to spend time with. No, from eternity... God the Father has had perfect communion with the Son and the Spirit. Nothing has been lacking. And so outside of sheer grace, there is is no reason at all for God to adopt us. There was was nothing lacking in Him that that, that we could fulfill. There, There was nothing lacking in the community of the Trinity. Nothing was lacking in the eternal, natural Son of God that made Him want to go out and adopt other sons and daughters. No. Out of sheer grace... He has adopted us. He loved us because He loved us. But all the same, though though God desired to adopt us as His children from eternity past, there was a problem, wasn't there? Though God desired to have us as His children, He couldn't. Though God desired to have us as His children, He couldn't, without purification being made first. And so the Catechism adds, we are adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. And this doesn't mean that, that God was angry at us and, and, and didn't like us, but, but Jesus convinced Him to like us. No, that's backwards. God loved us, and for that reason He sent our big brother to save us from our desperate straits. That's exactly what, what John 3.16 says, isn't it? God loved the world in this way. This is how God showed His love for the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Love came first. Christ's work did not make us desirable, no. This is the beautiful truth of the doctrine of election, that love came first, that Christ's work did not make us desirable, But God wanted to have us as his sons and daughters before the beginning of time and would stop at nothing to make it so. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, it's incredible. And not only has our our older brother, Jesus Christ, brought us into the family as sons and daughters, but he also reigns over us and protects us as our only Lord, having redeemed us both body and soul from sin and the devil. So now we're on our second point. But, but before we take a look at that, there's, there's a bit of a distinction that we should make first. Because when we say the creed, we don't say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, the Lord. No, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. See, in a general sense, since Jesus is Creator God, He is and has always been Lord of all. He's the creator of the whole universe and and therefore is the universe's rightful Lord as well. As the Gospels make it clear, there's nothing that is outside of His dominion. He's even the ruler of those who hate Him, even demons. Think of Mark chapter 5. There's this legion of demons that have possessed this man and they are just terrified of Jesus because they know who He is. They know that He is the Lord of all creation, and demons are part of creation. And so even before they can enter a herd of pigs, they have to ask His permission first. So even without respect to our salvation, He is is the Lord, He is Yahweh God, the creator of heaven and earth. But as those bought back by Him, as those whom He has redeemed, He is again not simply the Lord, but He is our Lord. He has bought us. We are His, and He is ours. And this is only the case because He paid an incomparable price to buy us. He didn't, buy, he, he didn't pay the regular ransom price of silver or gold, but, but He spilled His blood to purchase us as His own. Hebrews 1 verse 3 again talks about the eternal Son of God making, making purification for sins. Beloved, we were so lost... We were so lost that nothing less than the blood of the Son of God become human could pay our ransom. That was the only way we could be saved. 1 Peter 1 tells us that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world But He was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. The price, beloved, the price was beyond our paying. Even if we took every single part of this universe, packed it all together, and stuck it in a box, that would not be a big enough ransom to pay for our sins. No part of this perishable creation, indeed not all of creation put together, could equal the value of the blood spilled on Calvary. The price paid for our justification, for our adoption, beloved, that price was an infinite sum. And so as the hymn writer says, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. Look at the sacrifice. See who bears the awful load, tis the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. So consider the price, beloved. 
And secondly, consider the purchase. He has delivered us and purchased us. And here we have echoes of of Lord's Day 1. He has purchased us body and soul. We are not saved out of our bodies as souls. No, we are saved both body and soul by a Christ who took on both body and soul, a real, a full human nature. He has purchased us from sin and from the tyranny of the devil. We were, as we saw this morning, we were in bondage, in slavery to sin. And we have been saved from that slavery. The Christ has led us on a new exodus. And this is not meant to draw up a picture of Christ maybe, maybe trading himself to the devil for us. We're not saved from the devil in that way. No, Christ has not bought us from the devil. He was never our rightful owner, was he? As though we were in Satan's shop and Christ came in one day and, and bought us off the shelves and, and, and gave Satan his blood in exchange. No, that'd, that'd be ridiculous. A better image is that, is, is that we were in God's shop and, and Satan stole us off the shelves. We never stopped being God's rightful possession. But then Christ got a warrant and he raided Satan's house and he took us back from Satan. So, so we can be said to be delivered from the tyranny of the devil, out of the tyranny of the devil. We were in the devil's house. We were under the devil's thumb. We called Satan Lord, whether we realized it or not. And Christ swept into Satan's house and stole us off the shelf. And the word purchased falls in a similar vein. We were, we were completely invested in Satan's get-rich-quick scheme. Satan told our parents at the beginning of time that that they didn't have to go the hard route to bear God's image. No, 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 they could could, could eat the the fruit of the tree and and they could become God right then and there. We were so completely invested in Satan's get-rich-quick scheme and, and, and we racked up a colossal sin debt, not to Satan, not a debt to Satan, but a debt to the Father. But Christ swept in, he paid our debt, and he bought us back. But though we were in Satan's house, so to speak, Christ didn't write out the check to Satan. No, he wrote it out to God the Father, since it was to God that we owed the debt. He has purchased us from, uh, for the Father to be his very own. We have, been, we have been bought back by our big brother so that we could be his. We haven't been bought from our sin. And we haven't been bought from under the thumb of the devil so that we can go off and do our own thing, though. That's not what real freedom is. No, we have been brought back into a new service, into a new ministry, not not serving the devil or our our own sinful passions, not going back to that, that, that slavery, but being brought under the lordship of Christ, we are brought into his service as his servants, as his ministers. And so we say when we recite the creed, we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have both a Savior and a Lord. And there are two important implications to this. First, we are safe. We are safe. We are defended by our Lord. He has pulled us from the devil's grip, and he won't let us go. It may look from time to time, it may look like Satan is gaining the upper hand in our lives, in our church, in our country maybe. But what Christ has purchased, Christ will defend. Because Christ is our Lord. 
And then second, we are servants of our Lord. And this impacts every single moment of our life. We have been redeemed to live a new life. We have been redeemed to live a life of living sacrifice through Christ Jesus our Lord. But there's something else that flows right from that. The fact that Christ is our Lord and Satan is not. And so to act like we are still under Satan's dominion, to ever say, uh, I didn't mean to do that, the the devil made me do that, to ever say that is really to, to, to deny this article of our faith. Christ is Lord, Satan is not. But do we live what we confess? We confess that Christ is Lord. We even confess that Christ is our Lord, and that's all well and good, but do we live it? In Malachi's day, and you can read this in Malachi, chapter 1, I think, the priests called God Father, but they didn't honor Him. They called God Master, but, but they didn't fear Him. Pretending to honor God with our creed, but then dishonoring Him with our lives is, is rank hypocrisy. You can't just be a Christian on Sunday afternoon. But it's the kind of hypocrisy that that I think we all engage in from time to time. So consider these questions with me for a moment. First, do we believe that the uh, the body and blood of Christ are worth enough to cover every single thing that we have done? Beloved, there is no greater price. And there is no debt that is bigger than this ransom that Christ has paid. No amount of sin can overwhelm what Christ has done. Christ's blood and righteousness is enough to spring an infinite number of sinners from their slavery to sin. And do not think that it is not enough for for what you have done and what I have done. And then second, do we believe that we've been bought both body and soul? Or or do we somehow believe that, that we've only been bought soul? Do we believe that, that in the end we'll, we'll fly off to heaven to live our lives out as weightless spirits among the clouds and that, and that our bodies are only temporary and therefore don't need to be honored? To this, Paul responds, you've been bought body and soul. So glorify God in your body. Or don't you know that your body is, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And then third, do we believe that we have been delivered from the power of Satan and sin? Do we believe that we have been delivered from the power of Satan and sin? Or does Satan loom larger in our imaginations than Christ does? Do we still live under the cloud of sins that we think are just too big for Jesus to handle? Do we believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Have we forgotten what all of our children know, that my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do? Beloved, our our sins and all the power that hell can muster together cannot separate us from God. Christ has saved His people, He has bought His people, and the devil cannot buy us back. He cannot wrestle us from Christ's grip. Christ is too strong for him. He cannot win us back from the all-victorious Christ. But does our creed match our character, or or, or have we forgotten the gospel? 
Do we live every second of our lives as, as sons and daughters of Almighty God? Do we live every second under the Lordship of Christ? And beloved, there's not one son or daughter bought by Christ's blood over whom the Christ does not cry out, that's mine. But again, beloved, if, if, if you falter in your faith, and I know we all do from time to time, we do not always live out the gospel. But if you falter in your faith, if you feel that you have sinned beyond the reach or the love of your Lord and elder brother Jesus Christ, consider again the cross. For as the hymn writer wrote, here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost, Christ. The rock of our salvation, His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. Amen.